Hello, no one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Uh, yes, hello, this is uh, Jim Karagiannis, Counselor Jimmy K. I just wanted to uh, call attention to the fact that last week's episode of this uh, here radio internet show was extremely disrespectful. And uh, I am about far more things than just uh, spreading good BC Kush in the city. I, I was elected by the people of, of my ward to defend against the Turkish and Azeri menaces and expand the Greek homeland to its rightful position of Alexander the Great borders. Okay, and I have fought for that day and night against against all of my opponents, including the Macedonians and the Chinese and the Jewish communities who have been out to get me since day one just because I've said that their embassies should be should be closed. I, I think it's very unfair and I'm being treated very unfairly by these two these two hooligans who are Macedonian sympathizers and I would just like to uh, inform them that if they continue in this way, I will be forced to to take legal action against them. Okay? Fuck you. This is Jimmy K. Wow, Chris, that was that was a troubling voicemail to say the least. Yeah, Jimmy K with our first real legal threat, just two episodes in. I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty encouraged by uh, by our growth trajectory. Yeah, I'm just glad that we have an audience, even if it is uh, Jimmy K and his his Greek patriots. I think it's great. Hopefully, yeah. we can build on that. Yeah, I think so. I think we just need to insult and mock more people, and that's how we build an audience, bit by bit, one by one. Yeah, exactly. And feel free to, to call in and leave us uh, threatening voicemails. We, uh, we love to hear from our, our listeners. Yeah, they make for, for perfect intros. We want to let the city know uh, that there are at least some people listening to the show, um, even if they aren't necessarily fans. Right. That's how you become an influencer. Yeah. So what do we yeah. have on the show today? What are we going to be talking about? Well, right off the top, we should mention, after all, this is the Xanta Sightseeing Society, that there was, in fact, a Xanta sighting at Sunday's Pride Parade. Uh, so somebody snapped a picture of the man himself holding up a big cardboard sign that read, Famous Toronto Legend, Google Xanta. So, of course, that's what everybody did. Uh, the parade itself was just an afterthought for at least five minutes as everybody pulled yeah, out their course. smartphones and Googled Xanta. And the city is richer for it, no doubt. I have to say, he doesn't. I, I was down there. I didn't see him, but I saw. I, see, I saw the photo. He doesn't look great. No, he's definitely. Uh, he's been slipping on the push-ups. Uh, that was more of a thing when he was first around seven, eight years ago, or whatever it was. But now he seems to just be uh, living off his past glory and telling people to Google him instead of you know building the the new legend and doing more push-ups. Yeah, he needs to get out of the parades and off the streets and back into the gym. Yeah, the, well, the problem is... Get back he, to lifting. Yeah, he thinks he made it. And, I mean, in one sense he has, but in the other sense, you know, nobody's ever really made it. We could always get better. So, yeah, if any of our listeners see Xanta on one of their uh, Xanta sightseeing uh, society field trips, please encourage him to get back to the push-ups. Yeah, well, success is 90% failure. Yeah, so, uh, yes. Yeah. Failure is 10% success. <laughs> I have that poster up on my wall. So are, are we saying that Xanta at the moment at least is, is failing? Yeah, someday we're going to be that big, eh? We're just going to walk around the <laughs> city with uh, famous Toronto legend, Google, Xanta uh, <laughs> Sightseeing Society. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then of course, everybody will. And, uh, and it will all have been worthwhile. Maybe by episode 20 or so. Yeah, we'll see. That's, that's the dream, right? We're all here for, uh, for fame. So we do have some real topics. We do. So not that Xanta is uh, inconsequential. Yeah. I think so we've got uh, LCBO weed sales. Yeah. Are last about that. Last week we talked a little bit about um, not only the raids on the weed dispensaries uh, that had been a big story about a month ago, but also that Jimmy K 
um, our, our nemesis at this point, had been the champion in city council and took up the side of the independent owner-operated weed dispensaries um, and called for an end to the police crackdown. So that, so that was kind of uh, setting the tone for this week's story, which is a story that was in the Toronto Star and basically polled Torontonians um, in a forum research survey about how they would like to see their weed uh, sold at retail. And the options ranged uh, across the board, but the, the rough breakdown is that 35% of you uh, would like to see marijuana sold exclusively in pharmacies. So I guess that's if you think that weed should remain um, prescription only. 26% of you prefer dispensaries as uh, similar to the 100 that are now operating illegally in Toronto, uh, but operating nonetheless. 20% of you believe that government-owned LCBO should be selling weed at its 654 outlets across the province. So you would like to see the monopoly on liquor extended to a monopoly on weed. And 3% felt that it should be sold at convenience stores and 2% said that individual dealers should be allowed to continue to sell pot. So where do, where do you where fall? Where do you fall in this, in this poll? <laughs> I fall, uh, I think I fall into 3%. I would like to see weed sold uh, like beer is sold in uh, Quebec and most of the world where the only constraint is your age or the only limitation is your age. And if you could produce government issued ID, you should be allowed to buy your weed. Who are the two percent of people? Those people must be dealers. dealers. <laughs> yeah, two percent of the people surveyed were dealers. Yeah, the dealers themselves. They're like, yeah, I think I should be able to continue. I mean, dealers should be able to continue selling weed. Yeah, yeah. So they're 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 kind of seeing the writing on the wall. Competition is coming down the line, and they don't like it. So they're calling up the forum researchers and uh, and trying to influence public opinion that way. I think I would be okay with all of the above yeah well, the, i don't see why it needs to be limited to one of these right venues yeah that's a good point and they, they i don't think they included that as an option um but the most popular uh choice was to have marijuana sold in pharmacies um which to me implies again that this would be restricted to weed as as kind of medical marijuana as a as a medical use case and not just for leisure or entertainment. Or yeah, that just seems weird to me. Yeah, that's kind of, I, th I don't think that's in line with what the federal government's promise was when they when they promised to legalize weed. It wasn't legalized weed for, for those of us with uh, medical ills that require weed as a as a medical uh, solution, but but to everybody who, who likes weed recreationally. And it's not like they don't sell cigarettes in pharmacies. They don't sell... Right, another good point. Like pharmacies are supposed to be places you go to get medicine yeah sure. yeah that is a good point yeah so again so maybe people see this as weed as medicine um which i for some things i guess it is but yeah i think all of the above would be a good one but but all of the above um i think is mutually exclusive with the third option which again was the lcbo monopoly i don't think the lcbo would be in the business of weed retail if everybody else were i don't think they would have any competitive advantage or or reason to do it i don't know man if there were like wine and beer available at corner stores, I might still go to the LCBO. I've always sort of felt that we should have the LCBO and we should have corner stores and convenience stores selling wine and beer like in Quebec where they have the SAQ. But yeah. you can also buy at the 7-Eleven. Yeah, that's fair. So instead of, instead of a government monopoly, it'd be more of a public option. So that would set kind of like... I guess the baseline for quality and variety and pricing, and then and then it would keep the market in check that way. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, and it's just like a nicer place to shop so you can get more stuff. Like the 7-Eleven or whatever shitty convenience store you have doesn't buy as much wine or beer or whatever as the LCBO, so they can't get the really good stuff. Like the LCBO is one of the biggest buyers of wine especially. Yeah. So... They can get like whatever wine they want, which is why they usually have like pretty decent stuff. But you just don't really get that at like Joe Schmo's corner store or Dipano in, in Quebec. Yeah, you're right. They, they, so it's like a purchasing power argument where because they are such a large buyer, they have some bargaining power when it comes to price and and selection. Yeah, that's 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 fair. I think what I'd like to see more than anything is just experimenting with with various options and seeing kind of what what works best. Uh, but certainly one way to do that is an above, all of the above option. Um, and, and to that point, the Star uh, had a, an editorial also published 
which warned against setting the rules too rigidly and to um, allow for different distribution models to emerge and, and kind of see what works best. Um, so this, this, this followed three days after the forum research poll. And I think a lot of people are seeing um, behind these crackdowns on the dispensaries, a lot of jockeying happening behind the scenes for what will eventually be a pretty large and lucrative business, no doubt. And, um, and a lot of different interests are aligning themselves for one or more of these options, that which is most um, desirable or profitable to their models. So I think from a, from a public policy perspective, I think, uh, I think the, the, the star editorial is right. We shouldn't be too rigid. We should see uh, kind of what works best, set, set the parameters for what we're looking for. We're looking for mass distribution, but that also takes into, into consideration the limits we want to place on age or maybe proximity to schools or community centers or whatever it is. And then as long as those limits are met and those parameters are met, see what works best. Yeah, like, I think the worst thing they could do is turn it into sort of like what the beer store is, where it's only five or six companies that are doing all the selling and all the distribution. Yeah. Because that's how you get these really shitty uh, oligopolies, I guess. Yeah. Where the prices are too high and the quality sucks and, like, the beer store sucks. Yeah, I mean, how, yeah. It doesn't make any sense. The beer store is probably the most depressing retailer in the province. I know. It's, it's like Soviet-era austerity. <laughs> it's like, it's just, yeah, yeah, so you, and, and that's right, it's not it's not publicly owned. It's owned by the top five brewers or whatever it is. Um, so that would be the worst case scenario, I think. That would be the worst of all these options. And luckily, it wasn't, it wasn't selected as one of the, uh, one of the survey options. Yeah, well, you got to think that, like, after the fight that uh, Kathleen Wynne went through with the beer stores already, they're going to do everything they can to avoid creating another entity like that. Yeah. But, uh, who right. knows? I don't know. Right. A lot, a lot of what's, what's behind the LCBO and, and beer store monopolies is certainly kind of legacy agreements that the government is bound to. Um, so if yeah. we're starting with a blank slate, let's not repeat the errors of the past. We're, we're, we don't have a similar, uh, again, like, like legacy burden that we have to abide by. So now's the time to, to do it right. And, and luckily for at least the owner-operated mom-and-pop dispensaries, they have one city councilor on their side. Jimmy That's K. true. <laughs> Our boy. Our boy, Jimmy K. So we'll see. I think it'll be interesting. And though, he because is a force to be reckoned with. He is. He is. Can you? He can will get out of his car and scream at you if you are not on his side like he does with Uber passengers. Yeah, not just get out of his car. He'll, first, he'll follow you. Then he'll trap you in, in, in a driveway or somewhere else where you can't escape. And then he'll get out of his car and scream at you. So I can yeah, only imagine so if you're what like, he would if do you're to you. you're tweeting about, you know too many marijuana dispensaries or having a casual conversation with a friend about how they're, you know, these should only be sold in the LCBO. Like, you better watch your back because he's got eyes everywhere. Yeah, maybe do it from a protected account because as we know, any mention of his name immediately uh, shows up on his dashboard or on his radar. And uh, Yeah, the Jimmy K. Skynet. Yeah, he's, he's a litigious man as, as we know. Yeah, you might get a late night phone call. <laughs> yeah, so so certainly it's, it's an interesting time, I think, for weed smokers and even just people that are kind of interested in, in how new industries emerge. Um, usually you see new industries emerging around new technological breakthroughs, but this is one that's unique in that it's emerging um, due to uh, a regulatory change and a legalization of a, of a so far or thus far prohibited substance. So I can't think of any... Any real precedent for this, uh, at least not in, in our lifetime, uh, can you, where, where we're seeing the same dynamics at play? No, I think you'd have to go back to like the end of Prohibition. Yeah, exactly. The same sort of thing. Yeah, so maybe this will be just kind of uh, an interesting one-off event in our lives, or maybe it'll foreshadow uh, the legalization of all manner of drugs and other banned substances. <laughs> and uh, so we got to get this one right, because when it comes time for uh, cocaine dispensaries or uh, LSD dispensaries, we want to make sure that we have a good model to follow. Yeah, you don't want to be buying your bath salts from... Uh, <laughs> From pharmacies or whatever. Yes, yeah. and certainly not pharmacies. Yeah. Yo, they really need to do to get more LCBOs though. I was in the LCBO at King and Spadina. Uh, shout out to 
the world's douchiest LCBO, King of Spadina. Yeah, the King West crowd. Good crowd. Big, big yep. spending crowd. The King West crowd, that's right. Yeah. Uh, I was there Thursday night after the Blue Jays game at around 10.30. Okay. It was one of the few LCBOs that stays open past 10. Right. And it was a zoo. It was like, you know those apocalyptic end-of-the-world movies where everyone is like, in Getting the airport, the trying to escape the zombie apocalypse. Or that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they're like crawling all over each other. Yeah, it was like that. There were probably 200 people in there. Yeah, so, yeah, I've been there many times and I've seen the same zoo. And in any other business, that would be a prime signal uh, that it's time to expand and open new locations. So I'm not sure who makes those decisions over there at the uh, LCBO headquarters, but um, maybe it's time for some more locations downtown. Or at least, like, you're seeing now the beer is starting to be sold in grocery stores, but but none of those grocery stores that have the initial set of licenses are located downtown either. So we're, we need more outlets. Yeah, we do, especially in King West, because those people have they don't have anything else going on in their lives. They got a drink. Yeah, they they work hard and they party hard. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah, they, they should have a cocaine dispensary down there. They would do very well. Oh, they would do very well. Yeah, yeah. They should have one, uh, maybe like York and King, right in the financial district. Do you think, I think King West, that strip from like, I don't know, maybe John Street to Spadina or Bathurst, that has got to be one of the worst parts of the city. Yeah, Bathurst, I would say. It, it extends west of Spadina. Yeah, it's not really my scene. Fucking brutal. Yeah, yeah. That's where you. That's where you. If you when you buy your new Rolls Royce um, and uh, Fedora to match, that's where you want to take it to kind of show it off. Yeah. After we get rich off the podcast. Right. So exactly. So after we get rich off this podcast and we have companies throwing money at us to plug their products or services uh, to our large and growing audience, that's what we'll do. Maybe we'll go to Versailles, pop some bottles, and uh, reconsider. Reconsider our anti-King West stance. Yeah, I might feel differently. That's true. Yeah, I mean, I can't tell if this is anti-elitism, anti-douchism, or just envy. And I'm, it's I'm, just jealousy. Yeah. That's what it is. It's jealousy and envy. Yeah, so it's we need like to be Jay-Z careful said. Mm-hmm. I mean, who wants to drink tall boys at Ronnie's when you could pop bottles at Versailles? <laughs> I think nobody. <laughs> fair. Fair point. Fair okay. point. So I, I think we'll keep following this weed story um, as it's bound to have many twists and turns on the road to legalization. Um, and as we mentioned, we'd like to get some people in the industry, whether retailers, whether advocates, whether uh, adversaries on the show to talk about it. Because, again, this is something that's unprecedented in our lifetimes where we're seeing this this major substance that's consumed by a large, large percent of the population um, now moving its way from the black to the white market. And it's it's got a lot of implications. And I think uh, those are interesting to follow. Yeah, if you uh, are one of our eight listeners and you know anyone, or maybe you yourself uh, traffic in the Kush, then uh, hit us up. Reach We'd out. to have you on the show. You can come into the studio. And that's a good point, and, actually. Uh, I think I think... A dealer would also be an interesting guest because they're seeing a lot of disruption coming. Yeah. I mean, you could get away with poor customer service and poor variety and poor product information uh, when the barriers to entry into your market are large. But um, yeah, we mentioned last time, a lot of these dealers are going to be out of a job and I don't think they like it. So so if you are a dealer of, of any note, please come on the show and talk to us about how you don't like what's going on. Yeah. And if you're a dealer, like, what the fuck are you doing listening to podcasts? Like, what <laughs> sort of dealer are you? Yeah, you should be out dealing, right? This is why we're, we're going for legalization, because you haven't been doing your job well enough. So the other uh, big story this week, I guess, was the Scarborough subway issue, which seems to be coming to a head. Yeah. Do you want to give everyone an overview of what the... What the issue is here? Sure. So the Scarborough subway has been a debate that's been raging for quite some time now um, over what type of transit we should be building in Scarborough. Um, the current plan is to build a one-stop extension to the Bloor Danforth line that would take people all the way to Scarborough Town Center. Um, but there's a large faction of people that follow these things and, and study these things that think that an LRT, 
uh, light rail transit would be a preferable option and that it would provide more stops for the residents of Scarborough at a lower cost and in a way that's more uh, responsive to the actual capacity demands. So they think that there's not enough people in the region to require a full out subway um, that spending what is now a $3.2 billion on a one-stop extension is just crazy and, and way too expensive. Um, now, on the other side of that, you have, among others, John Tory, who's basically made the case that, look, the feds, the province, and the city are already on board with this plan. It might not be the perfect plan, but it is the one that is currently funded and approved. And if we are to go back to the drawing board and start all over, it could kick the can down the road another 10 years. Uh, so he uh, wrote an op-ed uh, to that, to, to kind of make these points, but snuck into that op-ed somewhere near the bottom, he included this paragraph, and I'll read it uh, verbatim. So, John Tory, but many of the subway's loudest critics do not live or work in Scarborough, where more than half of the population is born outside of Canada. When they say this is too much to spend on a subway, the inference seems to be that it's too much to spend on this part of the city. So, of course, John Tory was saying that if you are against the Scarborough subway, not only do you not understand the public choice arguments for this is a done deal, let's just go ahead and, and get it done, but you might also be a racist. Well, do you have a point? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I saw some people weren't too happy with that. Uh, Matt Elliott, who writes for Metro Toronto, was... He says, not outraged, not mad, but disappointed in John Tory moving from evidence-based arguments to name-calling and kind of what he claimed are Fordian tactics of, of setting this as a wedge <laughs> issue and splitting the vote. Uh, well, if he's resorted to the ad hominem fallacy, then he <laughs> has already lost the argument. Right, right. That, that, is, that is the argument made by Matt Elliott and others. I actually think that John Tory has a point. I think this is not the best solution. I do like the fact that a subway would allow for continuous um, transportation. You wouldn't have to uh, you wouldn't have to switch trains um, when you reach Kennedy. Um, and I do think that yeah, like have you been on the Scarborough RT? Yes, it is it's fucking awful. So it's it's awful switching trains, and then I think the trains themselves are are too small, and that's pretty awful too. Depending on I guess the time. That you're riding um but that, i think that scarborough train is like i remember riding it and leaning up against the doors and it felt like the doors were gonna fall off or something yeah and especially if you're like, used to riding regular sized subways and you're not from scarborough it's pretty jarring because you can pretty much like stretch your legs out and touch the seats in front of you so to have that little distance between you and the person sitting in front of you staring at you <laughs> it's a little much yeah so I think aside from from kind of my preference for subway, um, and also just just to mention on the on the capacity concerns, a subway has about double the capacity of LRT, and a lot of people say that there's not the population density in Scarborough to uh, merit that much capacity. But I think that might be a little short sighted. Um, we got to think of subway building as a long term. Jen Kismet says a hundred year project. And if we were to go back and look at the last 20, 30, 40 years of transit planning, it's obvious that past groups of politicians and advocates have underestimated capacity requirements and, and have underbuilt. I, think, I don't think we're at a risk of, of overbuilding anytime soon. And, and if we are, it'll just be kind of for a, a short time period. And within five to 10 years, development usually follows mass transit and, and the development and the density will follow and, uh, and fill up the subway cars. Well, that's what they said about those other stops on that line. On Shepherd? Yeah. And yeah, and they're they're totally abandoned. Well, the the ridership is growing slowly. And if you I don't know if you've been to like Young and Shepherd recently, but there's a ton of development happening at least at the both ends of the line, so at Young and Shepherd and at Don Mills. Um, I think it's Don Mills by Fairview Mall. Um, but I think that that also speaks to the fact that once we do build subway, once we do make this kind of large dollar commitment, we should also amend the official plan and allow for denser development along the subway. People have to live somewhere. So if we're going to build a subway or whether it's an LRT or whatever, any sort of mass transit, we should allow the developers to follow and kind of build the appropriate buildings for, for uh, an avenue with, with major mass transit. Yeah, I think I, I basically agree with you, actually. Um, like the idea of building everything for five to 10 year 
terms has got us into this mess in the first place where right. you know there's not enough transit and we're not going to have enough transit for at least another like 10 years um and i think like it's hard to predict how the city is going to change in 10 years if it's anything like the last 10 years then the uh the regions outside of toronto are going to be the ones that are growing much faster than the regions inside toronto so i mean the real mistake to me seems to be building those stations along the shepherd line like people go from scarborough town center to uh young and shepherd or or downtown um they don't really like need to stop anywhere along the way for the most part and that's why they're so empty like there might be a lot of use at scarborough town center there might be a lot of use um at young and shepherd yeah so uh, well, it's, it's don mills the, the the last stop on the shepherd line is don mills at the, the far east which is which is by fairview mall so what am I thinking of? Where's like Bessarian Station? Yeah, there? no, that's the Shepherd Line. But the Scarborough Town Center is the extension to the Bloor Danforth Line in the east. Shepherd Line is is the kind of is like further north and and oh, extends yeah. from Young and Shepherd. So in there east. you go. That yeah. shows how that shows how much I know about this. <laughs> Have you ever ridden the Shepherd my, Line? Like, Ten block radius of downtown Toronto. Yeah, I mean, like nothing ever gets built in this city. I just feel like going back and switching it around again is just gonna be a waste of time like obviously it sucks that it costs three billion dollars but you know you pay for it once and it's built and at least you're doing something like i've been out to scarborough town center on that rt it sucks having to switch trains it sucks riding that dinky little monorail it's like that simpsons episode where the guy comes to town and builds the monorail yeah. that's like what the scarborough rt is yeah it, it's terrible so yeah. i think if they can replace that like that would be uh, that would like really help people who who use that every day at least. And I think we we need to separate the cost somewhat from the argument. I mean, it's hard to do, but I think that three point two billion number should be attacked uh, itself. I think I think we've been paying much too much for any sort of public infrastructure um, in North America. And I think if you start looking into the reasons why, there's a lot to criticize and a lot of ways that we can actually get those numbers down with some structural reform. So I think that. Um, it's, you necessarily have to tie the development of a new subway line with its costs, but I think we can agree on the merits of a subway out to Scarborough Town Center while not exactly accepting that it has to be at these enormously inflated, uh, budgets. Yeah. I mean, I don't really know. Like these things, they never seem to end up costing what they're projected to cost. Um, No, certainly not. But if you look at having that debate seems a little silly to me. Yeah, so if you look at other jurisdictions, um, people around the world, they even without, without considering jurisdictions like China where they have very strong eminent domain or equivalent laws and they could just seize the, the property of anybody that's in the way and, and, and throw what's basically slave labor at the problem. Even if, even if you count those out and look at how much European countries pay for subways, we pay a lot more. Um, and I'm not sure that we need to be. Um, so that's that's maybe an interesting topic to to dive into on its own. Whether you know whether you prefer an LRT or a subway, we're probably paying too much for either option either way. I think like it's it's unfortunate that the transit debate in the city has turned into a debate about whether we're going to build this one stop subway extension or not. Yeah, like the problem is so much bigger than that, and it seems like every time there's an issue like this that comes up, it turns into an argument over some uh, relatively minor quibble. Like right. $3.2 billion is not, is not a minor amount of money, but um, in the grand scheme of things, if you're talking about how much you're going to spend over the course of 10 years to modernize the transit in this city, it's going to be a lot more than $3.2 billion, right? And I think there are very few things that the city does um, that are that are as important as mass transit, public transit. So if we are to spend a lot of money, that's kind of the place to do it. I also think that, and to John Tory's point, once you have the feds and the province on board, that's no small feat aligning those those planets of various political motives and, and interests. And once that's done, I mean, let's just get it over with. Let's build it and let's move on to what we really need, which is a relief line somewhere downtown. 
Um, that's obviously what the city desperately needs. Everything else is a distraction. So I'd rather just get going with it so that we could focus our time and energy and future advocacy on the one that really matters. Yeah, and it's it's true that if the downtown councillors kill this subway extension, that's going to put off getting a relief line passed for like 10 years, at least until there's a whole bunch of council turnover. Like it's going to totally poison the well for any yeah. sort of consensus on that issue. And I think that the pure um, kind of whiteboard thinking uh, transit wonks, they, they overlook that. They look at just the merits of the various plans. Uh, but you can't ignore, again, the public choice calculations. You can't ignore the fact that this thing already went through council, already has Kathleen Wynne in the province on board, already has Justice Trudeau's backing. And, and it, that, that can't be overstated. That's, that's just like, that is what's been holding up projects. It's not that we've been lacking ideas or we, you know, you've seen these maps floating around the internet every two years of what an ideal subway system would look like with, you know, lines along every major North, South and East West, West Avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, there's no lack of imagination or plans or suggestions for where subways or LTs should be built. What's lacking is the political will and organization and funding. And that's, that's what we have on this Scarborough subway extension. So let's, let's get it done. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so the Glo- Globe, uh, Globe and Mail disagrees. They wrote an editorial that opens with uh, Toronto's proposed one-stop $3.2 billion subway extension is indefensible. A city with crushing transit problems cannot afford to waste so much money for so little gain. And yet Mayor John Tory continues to push forward this underachieving mega project with a small-minded zeal that is distorting decision-making in Canada's largest city. And to that I say, and I've asked some people on Twitter... Why do you, why do you uh, Globe editorial team, why do you think that John Tory is, is so behind this project? He's not really all that ideological. I don't think he's a small-minded man generally. You have to just assume that he has information or he understands the process of getting something to this level of approval uh, and completion done. And, uh, and I think it's, it's just too easy to s- dismiss him as being small-minded and ideological when, when probably he has uh, more information than we do. So the Torontoist take on this, which is persuasive, is that the subway extension is a key part of making smart track work, which is his, obviously, centerpiece transit program. Right. And if he can't make that work, then his first term is uh, a bit of a failure. And he's got a re-election in, what is it, two years now? Yeah. Yeah. So, that so is- he's got to make progress on something. He's got to sh- have something to show for himself. That is um, a good point. Uh- and a big part of that is smart track. I think it is likely a... Uh, a political calculation for him uh, but so is everything like hello the Globe and Mail is you know supposed to be a newspaper with sophisticated editorialists obviously it's a political calculation um, but John, John Tory's re-election also I think rests on him at least to some extent making the right decision or at least what's viewed as the right decision by a large enough uh, segment of the yes. population right Yes, exactly. And it's it's true what Tory says. It's like the people who are writing these editorials, they don't go to fucking Scarborough Town Center. Right. Like I, you know, I'm in a glass house cuz I've only been to Scarborough Town Center a few times too. Yeah. I don't horrible, use the Scarborough RT, <laughs> but I know it sucks. Yeah. Like these people I, obviously there's more people living in a more densely populated community downtown. So, of course, you need more infrastructure downtown. But it can't be to the total neglect of uh, every other part of the city. And Scarborough is, I think it's the poorest region in the city. It, it really it gets no attention. Um, and I think that a big part of that is because the so-called elites who frame the debates around transit and every other issue in the city uh, care more about the park in their neighborhood than they do about this entire part of the city that they never go to or experience. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And I, I think beyond that, um, downtown has seen a huge development boom. Uh, but at a cer- certain point, you kind of 
reach the limit of what what is doable uh, right every after a while every warehouse and parking lot gets built over um, and there are some projections that Toronto's population overall uh, will swell by 2.6 million people to 7.5 million over the next decade and a half so that will necessarily mean more development in more parts of the city and we need yeah, to set the stage for that that's not going to be at Queen's Key like that's exactly so that's going to be in Scarborough need to take a longer time horizon when thinking about these things and when they say that there's not enough density uh, currently in Scarborough or that there's not even enough uh, if we were to follow the official plan um, as far as what will be developed there over the next uh, coming decades um, we're very bad at projecting um, populations and traffic and that sort of thing we, we have a history of kind of getting it wrong and that's why we have these capacity issues now on the young university line in downtown because we haven't gotten it right i think i think again the risk is not that we overbuild on capacity but it's that we underbuild and that's that's one of the greatest um shortfalls of toronto as a city is our lack of proper modern uh mass transit so uh, i i don't i don't see there being a risk of us having too many empty subways to nowhere we're not even close to that to that yeah, and it would be good just to fucking build something for once. Like, we don't build anything anymore, and our cities are becoming these husks of what they ought to be because of it. It's it's very discouraging. I would love to just see something built. Yeah, I mean, public infrastructure, you're right. We, I mean, we obviously were building a ton of, of, uh, of new condos and new commercial projects, but we don't. We need those bones that they rest on. We need, we need the infrastructure that allows for it to happen and, and kind of makes it, makes it possible to build more and more. Yeah. Well, as we know, city council listens to this podcast religiously. So I think, uh, we'll definitely have an influence on the discourse. I think we made convincing uh, arguments and I think, uh, that if the Scarborough subway extension does go through, we'll all know who to thank for that. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So, the next story uh, kind of uh, follows along those lines uh, on the growth of the city generally and Toronto's population booming. Um, and it was written by Stephen Marsh for The Guardian. Um, and the title was Welcome yep. to the New Toronto, the most fascinatingly boring city in the world. And it does a pretty good job of, of recapping for those that don't know, uh, I guess international and, and British specifically audiences, uh, where Toronto is now and how it's not the same city it was even 10 years ago. Um, so I think I'll, I'll read just kind of a short excerpt uh, that I think does a good job of, of encapsulating the argument, or at least the tone of, of the article, and then we could, we could go off on it. Uh, so last year, the increasing population of Toronto passed the declining population of Chicago. Comparisons come naturally. What Chicago was to the 20th century, Toronto will be to the 21st. Chicago was the great city of industry. Toronto will be the great city of post-industry. Chicago is grit, top-quality butchers, glorious modernist buildings, and government blight. Toronto's clean jobs and artisanal ice creameries, identical condos, excellent public schools, and free healthcare for all. Chicago is a decaying factory where Americans used to make stuff. Toronto is a new blank, or a new bank rather, where the tellers can speak two dozen languages. You feel a natural ease in time when you touch down from another city. You don't have to strain for hope here. The future matters infinitely more than the past. So what do you think about that? It's pretty hopeful. Yeah, like I would say overall it was a very positive uh, depiction of the city. Mm, I don't know how boring Toronto actually is, though. Yeah, like, I, I agree. What, it depends what your yardstick is. Compared to New York City, maybe. Bangkok, but compared to most certainly. American cities, definitely not. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a lot more going on here. And there's this like sort of image of Toronto or maybe like a mythology that it's this nice, good, boring, I guess, place as he puts it, where everyone is doing well and everyone is diverse and cosmopolitan and uh, everyone is happy about that. But I'm not sure that that's really true. I think that's how we like to think of ourselves. Um, I'm not sure that's, that's how we actually are. There's a passage in, the the piece where he talks about how bankers on wall street are doing cocaine like out of strippers assholes and in toronto they're managing teachers pension plans and going to the cottage like yeah. no <laughs> bankers in toronto are doing the exact same shit yeah, as yeah. bankers everywhere like smallest scale i, I don't but think yeah, we're certainly. that different really yeah no i think i think that's right i think um i like i like the the most fascinating part of his title but not so much the boring and i think it kind of you get out of toronto what you put into it 
And um, it might be a function of age, but certainly there are way more interesting neighborhoods and bars and cafes and restaurants than there were even 10 years ago. And maybe if you're kind of past yeah. the point of going out frequently, you might have missed that. But Toronto is, is more interesting now than it's ever been. And I've lived here for a long time. Um, and, it's, and it's getting better, I find, every year. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And not just better in the in the kind of nice on paper, nice for a global city kind of TED Talk sense, but also more interesting and, and more diverse. Uh, Toronto's always been diverse, but you're seeing, I think, a lot more with some, I mean, there are some major room for improvements. Um, but I think that we're doing a pretty good job of adopting things that worked well in bigger, more interesting cities like, like New York City and bringing them here and adding our, our unique flavor and touch to it. Yeah. Now the article ends with him suggesting that the future could go two different ways, right? And maybe you can you can speak to that and what you thought about it. He he was basically saying that you know we can continue on this upward trajectory and uh, the future will be bright, or we can turn. I didn't really understand what the alternative was. We can turn into Chicago, I guess. We can decay. Yeah, so I think he, he makes throughout the piece some pretty pointed criticisms of city council and of our former mayor, Rob Ford, and said that Toronto's uh, reputation as this cosmopolitan, tolerant city is constantly at the brink of, of being debunked or of, of not being so if, if we let the, you know, our worst natures take control and, and give in to whatever... Um, whatever motives we had to, to elect Ford or, or, or whatever it was. Um, I'll, I'll actually read the, the, the closing paragraph and, yeah. and we can talk about it. So he says, Toronto's place in the world is not fixed. That is what is so exciting about it. The question that Toronto faces, the question that, it, that its various crises and contradictions pose is whether the city will rise into a glorious future of a mingled and complicated humanity, an avatar of a singular cosmopolitanism, or whether it will shrink back and be swallowed by the provincial miasma that inveigles it. Nice word. This is a real question. The city, yeah, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, he writes for The Guardian and I don't. So, you know. True. This is a real question. The city could legitimately go either way. How much longer can Toronto endure its terminal lightness? How much longer can a city so interesting insist on being so boring? So I think this goes back to what, what you call his mean? central error. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think he was trying to write kind of like a puff piece, but not seem like a puff piece writer. So he had to throw in some caveats. <laughs> um, because, yeah, Toronto... Fuck, Chris. We're going to have Stephen Marsh in our voicemail next week. <laughs> you know what, Stephen uh, Marsh? Yes, if you're listening, Chris. come on and, and defend yourself. Defend this notion of Toronto the boring. Now, are there parts of Toronto that are boring? Are there certain trends that might lead it to be a more boring place? Certainly. But I think that there are some opposing forces, and, and, and those are the internal migration, young Canadians from throughout the country moving to Toronto, and immigration, where most people who move to Canada from other countries um, or, the, or the largest uh, single the largest city for, for, uh, that they want to end up in is Toronto. And we're getting, we are already the most multicultural city in the world, I think by some measures. And that necessarily adds a, a level of spice to city life. I think we need to remember like why Rob Ford was elected the mayor. And this sort of touches on what we were talking about with the subway. And it's that for a lot of people, maybe most people in the city, um, Toronto's not this like exciting candy land of artisanal ice creameries, right? It's like right. fucking long commutes, um, with nothing happening to change that. It's pretty shitty jobs in a lot of cases. It's really expensive houses that no one can afford. Um, and there's like nothing being done to address the grievances that these people have. So yeah, like part of the problem is certainly um, the uh, city council's uh, gridlock, I guess, and like their inability to do much of anything. But I think uh, another part of the problem is this sort of smug self-satisfaction that the people living downtown um, and the people writing you know, columns about the city for The Guardian. I, I don't know what Stephen Marsh thinks about this, but 
this is sort of smug self-satisfaction that Toronto is great and we can look at Chicago or New York or these other places where poverty and crime and uh, inequality, I guess, is much more visible um, and say, well, that's, that's not our reality. That doesn't exist here. But it does exist here. Yeah. Um, and I think if, if that trend continues, you're going to end up with the Manhattanization of the city, right? And we talked about that a little bit last week. Um, but th that's sort of this dark undercurrent of everything that happens in the city. And people dismiss their, their grievances. Like, he touches on Rob Ford in this piece as if it was an accident. Like, right. it just was lightning. But right. there's going to be an more effect with Ford. no cause. Right. Yeah, and I think it speaks to kind of, he really focuses on and highlights uh, Toronto's cosmopolitanism. Um, but I think to a certain degree, his idea is a false cosmopolitanism, where he's used to living in neighborhoods where you see people of different cultural backgrounds, um, but they all work pretty much the same jobs. Uh, they all share yeah. very similar political beliefs. Uh, they all go to the same restaurants, to the same uh, nightclubs, at the same bars. Um, they don't venture out to Rexdale or to Scarborough. Um, yeah, they don't, it's actually very homogenous downtown. Right, it's very homogenous. It's a facade of cosmopolitanism, but it is very yeah. homogenous. They all went to the same schools. They all read the same books. They all watch the same TED Talks or Monk debates. Um, and I think we have to move beyond that if we are to really call ourselves cosmopolitan. We have to understand that actually the, the, the lived experience of two, two or three people downtown, even if they do share different cultural backgrounds or experiences or heritage, is, uh, is, is much different than that of somebody living up at Jane and Finch or um, in Malvern. And, and maybe cosmopolitanism isn't the be-all, end-all virtue that, that we we want like if you're going to use cosmopolitanism i'm not saying that th that he's doing it specifically in this piece but it is used to sort of dismiss um anyone who is not inside that bubble and any any grievances that they have as being you know parochial or or anti-cosmopolitan then i think you're setting yourself up for uh political catastrophe right the sort of thing we have with ford but maybe worse eight years from now or 12 years from now if these problems continue to deepen yeah no i think that's right and i think that there are some things that we could do to try to avoid that and i think the the one one of the factors that you mentioned that's that's a really important one is the cost of housing and this is kind of a recurring theme uh but the more expensive we make uh life in toronto um the more that we're going to price out these people that add the variety into life uh, to Toronto, the people that, that would have voted for Ford or that do offer a different perspective or a different, a different angle to what Toronto as a global city moving into the future should look like. And I think the way to kind of combat that and to make sure that we still remain uh, a cosmopolitan in his sense of the word, um, or as he likes to, to consider it, is to, is to make sure that life remains affordable for people who went to different schools, you know, even some who, God forbid, did not go to university or did not, do not go to monk debates or listen to TED Talks. Um, I, think, I think cities are richer uh, when, they, when they have a, a wide variety of people um, intermingling. I think that's what makes cities so cool is that you have people from so many paths and, and walks of life living in close proximity and they, and they share experiences. And uh, we have to we have to be careful, if anything, of of make, of missing out on that by pricing, you know, half or, or more of those people out of the market. Yeah, well, don't knock TED Talks. Everything I learned, I learned from <laughs> TED Talks. My yeah, posture, um, how to hug. Yeah, the value of uh, at least 120 minutes of meditation every day. That's my new, by the way, that's my new like disparaging term for people who I think are articulate and hit the right buzzwords, but don't actually have much of interest or substance to say. I, I just call them TED Talkers. So that, yeah. that's so true. I hope, I hope that's uh, something we need to, we just should do away with them. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or at least, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's like, as long as we uh, create the stigma around TED Talkers, it's, it's even better that we do have the term and do have TED Talks. So at least we know who we're talking about. Yeah, there should be like ads run by the province, like the same the way they do it with drunk driving and stuff. Yeah. Have your family stage an intervention. Yeah, yeah. To stop you from watching TED Talks and just talk throwing, to your friends. 
yeah, just, yeah. you know, live life and, and actually specialize in something so you have more interesting insight than uh, what can fit into a 10-minute YouTube video uh, made for mass consumption. Well, I think we uh, we got to wrap it up. Yeah, so that's been Toronto this week. Um, we're expecting a lot of, uh, of good things in the city. The not only the dispensaries, uh, again, foreshadowing weed legalization and either Scarborough, Scarborough subway extension or LRT, but there is a lot happening. And Stephen Marsh, just to, just to sum that up, did, did capture, I think, a lot of kind of the cool trends that are working in favor of Toronto um, increasing in status globally. And uh, it's a good thing for him and for everybody else that we're here to record it and talk about it and, and offer our two insightful opinions. Yeah. I would say very insightful, actually. Yeah. So, so Chris, where the, can people uh, where can people find you on the internet? People can find me on Twitter at Chris Spoke, C H R I S S P O K E. The same story applies for Instagram. And uh, please do reach out. And if you have any interesting guests or topics that you'd like to see on the show, uh, recommend them. We're looking to grow this slowly but surely, and with as much outside input as possible. Um, I don't care about your stupid opinions, uh, so <laughs> please don't send me your suggestions for the show. Um, I'm on Twitter at Taylor Scollin. Uh, please don't DM me. Uh, ad hominems will get you blocked. Um, send them my way. about Jimmy K will get you blocked. Send that my way. And we actually have a new, I just created this, Chris, uh, a new Twitter account for the show. Nice. It is... Uh, Zanta Society at Zanta Society. So follow along. Yeah, you can follow us there, and I think we're still getting on the iTunes store. Um, yeah, so but that's a- uh, maybe we'll be there soon. You can subscribe to us there, or you can get the new episodes on Twitter, SoundCloud, Twitter, wherever we happen to be. And this is like a weekly thing now, eh? Yeah, I think it will be. I think it will be. I don't think we're going to run out of stories to, to talk about. It is it is no. a big and interesting city. You'll get that content every Monday, folks. Look out for it. All right. All right. See you later, Chris.
heart of me, shit I'm trying to see And wherever that they at, that's what I'm trying to be It was all good a week ago, young the big tipper Grinded all wicked through it all at the scribbles Got me looking at my stats, like where the fuck is the rest at? Looking at my watch like it's a bad investment Speaking investments, we talking investments My real money, yeah, I'm trying to invest it Tell a nigga dream, man, tell a nigga son Folks got a more holy, still ain't heard nothing, yo yeah. yeah. Smoke, smoke, man. Politicians talking crazy.